The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. Almost exactly the same kind of thing you see at parties. Glow sticks came out of a Navy development program that started during the Vietnam War as a way of creating a target marking aid. I'm Reuters Opinion Editor Jason Fields, and I'm joined today by Matt Galt and Joe Trebethek of War is Boring. This week, we're talking about some of the most weird weapons that the U.S. military came up with for use during the Vietnam War. You're listening to War College, a weekly discussion of a world in conflict focusing on the stories behind the front lines. Here's your host, Jason Fields. U.S. Marines are finally phasing out one of the Vietnam War's most iconic weapons, the M-16, in favor of the M-4. The Marines were the last branch of the military to take up the M-16, and they're the last branch to drop it, years after the others. The M-16 was a troubled weapon during the Vietnam War. So, Matt, can you start us off by telling us why? Uh, Well, like you said, the M-16 is the iconic weapon of the Vietnam War. Um... The, the rifle, it's the longest-serving, generally-issued small arm in American military history. It's been used for over 50 years. Um, Special Forces first began using it in its AR-15 model uh, in 1962. Other branches had adopted it, adopted it in 1963. Uh, during its first few years, there were a lot of problems. A lot of this is anecdotal evidence, uh, but right from the start, soldiers were complaining that there were a lot of jams, uh, the worst of these were a failure to extract, meaning that when a cartridge was spent, it stayed in the chamber after the gun fired, and which is, you know, terrible and deadly if you're in the jungle um, fighting. The problems were so bad that Congress investigated the issues in 1967. Uh, the investigations found the Army largely at fault for the problems. The Pentagon hadn't properly trained troops on the new gun and failed to issue cleaning kits to help clear the jammed cartridges. Uh, This is a very brief explanation of a very complex issue that's saddled by 50 years of studies, anecdotes, and strong emotions. We could sit here and talk all day about the M16 just in Vietnam, but why we adopted a new rifle at that time, why the American military adopted that rifle uh, at that time is kind of more interesting. It was a time of weird change, and Joe, I'm going to kick it over to you to explain that to us. Yeah, when you uh, look sort of at the development of weapons and military technology in the United States after the end of the Second World War, there's a certain amount of stagnation. The military is drawing down, and everybody's planning on sort of moving on with their lives. Uh, Then the Cold War really kicks off with Korea, and the Korean War happens, and suddenly there's this sort of outburst of energy and the need for new gear and new equipment to hold off the Soviets and their allies around the world. But there's also a focus on nuclear weapons, and nuclear weapons is still the big thing, and everybody believes that nuclear weapons are going to to rule the day. Uh, Any war is going to be fought on a nuclear battlefield. And, uh, you know, nuclear weapons up, down, sideways on the food chain, including a nuclear-armed recoilless rifle that would have lobbed a very small nuclear weapon at very short ranges by just, you know, infantrymen on a tripod or something <laughs> like Joe, so. Joe, can I ask you, was that something that actually got built? Oh, yes, and fielded. There there were units that were preparing to use that in combat, and it was uh, capable of being set up on a tripod or on a jeep, 
and a relatively short range, relatively low yield, and probably if, if somebody could have, they would have built a nuclear hand grenade. I mean, if, if they could have found a way, they would have, I mean, nuclear everything. That It was the rage. Um, the problem is that by the end of the 50s, it's becoming increasingly clear that that kind of, you know, nobody wants that kind of nuclear war. The Soviets don't want that kind of nuclear war. The Americans don't want that kind of nuclear war. Nobody wants that kind of nuclear war. And then you have uh, a series of insurgencies cropping up. The Soviet Union basically declares itself the sponsor of leftist insurgencies around the world, and suddenly the United States finds itself the sponsors of regimes fighting those insurgencies. It becomes painfully obvious that nuclear weapons just do not help in those situations. And suddenly there becomes this sort of outburst to take all of the advanced science and technology that have been sort of brewing in the background and apply it to sort of painfully low-tech problems, really low-tech problems, and deal with the fact that these insurgents are operating with very limited means and yet are beating up uh, American allies all over the place, uh, you know, dealing with armies with tanks and with standing armies and conventional weapons, and suddenly you know, none of those things seem to matter as much as guys who can hide in caves or scurry into the mountains or drag their artillery pieces around. Uh, the French in Indochina being a great example of this. The, the French thought that their freestanding army, with a, a significant amount of combat experience, actually, uh, would be able to take on a very limited Vietnamese insurgency. Uh, and that doesn't work. That doesn't work very well at all. The, the French public eventually becomes very disenchanted with this, and France's allies become relatively disenchanted with this and more or less push France into accepting a deal. And the French eventually happily wash their hands of the whole thing, and then the Americans find themselves stuck in Vietnam. Uh, if the Americans move in to become the primary benefactors of the new independent states of uh, South Vietnam, Laos, and Cambodia, and uh, North Vietnam uh, becomes a, a basically a client state of, of the Russians. They are uh, fiercely nationalistic, and the United States views them as a client state of the uh, Soviet Union, and when they start sponsoring an insurgency in South Vietnam, it becomes the duty of the new sort of American military that will be taking on these kind of missions to roll in and back up our allies, and suddenly we find ourselves directly in the same position where American troops are fighting a very low-tech insurgency that still seems to have all the advantages. Well, so what did the U.S. military look like when it rolled in? I mean, would, is it immediately recognizable? Uh, does it look like closer to the World War II Army? Does it look more like the soldiers of today? It looked very much like the army that uh, came out of Korea, and that army did in many ways look like the army that came out of World War II. It was starting to get new weapons. Um, it had... Uh, new infantry weapons and new armored vehicles and and such, but a lot of that was actually left behind. The uh, U.S. Army especially spent years debating about just exactly what would be useful in the jungles of Vietnam and told a lot of units to leave their tanks behind and other sort of heavy weapons behind, figuring they just wouldn't be useful. And there was something to be said for that, uh, but of course... Um, the units that did bring those vehicles along and other heavy weapons along found ways to sort of crowbar them into what was a sort of a fight that the United States probably didn't have a significant amount of experience with, at least not in the uh, 
in in that time frame. I mean, the U.S. Army, for instance, loves to talk up its first counterinsurgency campaigns being against Native Americans uh, in the American Southwest, especially, but really hadn't been doing the kind of counterinsurgency against a modern guerrilla group uh, really at all. And, you know, the experience of fighting in Latin America in the 19th century and in the Philippines at the turn of the century and all of that was pretty dated by the time the United States rolled up in Vietnam and found themselves fighting a, a, a communist insurgency that had had decades of experience in combat already at that point. So what were some of the innovations? Well, I mean, to, to jump in from the, uh, the rightful thing, the, the M16 really had a lot of these problems to begin with. And, and as Matt said, we really don't have time to get into the long and sordid history, uh, political and mechanical of that rifle. But it did generate desire for a more reliable and easier to maintain infantry weapon. And one of the first, well, not necessarily one of the first things, but eventually there was a program called the Low Maintenance Rifle that the Army started. And they contracted out to uh, the TRW Corporation to create a bare-bones, painfully simple, no-fuss, no-muss rifle. And TRW came back with this thing that looks sort of like a rectangular pipe with a magazine attached to it and a pistol grip. And it is bare-bones. It is painfully simple. And this was supposed to be America's answer to the uh, AK-47, a, a painfully simple, extremely reliable, uh, you know, reliable, uh, almost, you know, it's mythological, it's reliability. You know, the idea that you can bury the Kalashnikov for years on end with no protective ceiling and you dig it up, you know, in a decade and go off and it works just fine. And this was supposed to be the American answer to it, but of course with the benefits of American technology and American innovation and, and good old Yankee ingenuity. And unfortunately, it just didn't work. It's heavier than the M16, which was already a problem. Yeah, it, it, it was actually heavier because it, because it wasn't uh, – it was made to be extremely rugged. And so you didn't have these light aluminum components and plastic components. It was made out of sheet steel. And so it was actually heavier. Uh, it fired slower. It was awkward to use because basically to keep the frame and the shape of it condensed and simple, it had this weird arrangement by which the magazine stuck out of the left side of the weapon rather than what you might otherwise think of out of the bottom or out of even the top. And actually, we wrote a piece on War is Boring about the low-maintenance rifle because I had the opportunity to see some of these weapons uh, stored at the Washington Navy Yard of all places. And they are fascinating and awkward and just do not look like they would work very well. Well, we'll, we'll throw a photo of it into the show notes so people can go take a look at it when we're, uh, when they're, we're they're fascinating. The podcast. Yeah. And yeah. this development continued into the, into the mid seventies after America's involvement in Vietnam had ended. And I, I still don't know why they ended up at the Washington Navy Yard. It's quite possible that the Navy SEALs were interested in testing these weapons out because of their increased reliability. They were slightly more reliable, but with all these other faults of basically the weapon breaking down because of its own over-engineered components and because of its low rate of fire and because it was heavier, it, it just wasn't attractive. There were only six of them ever made. I've had the pleasure of seeing three of them all at the same time. 
and it was pretty impressive to see them sort of lined up because you know that the other three were probably destroyed in testing. So it's, uh, you know, these are rare and odd rifles. And we ended up with the M16. <laughs> so, okay, well, then uh, if we're talking about weird stuff, Matt? All right, so my kind of favorite weird weapon from this era are the silenced revolvers um, that the military created. So South Vietnam dug a lot of tunnels, right? Uh, they were, like Joe said, they were an insurgency. There was a, They had a lot of ambushes and moved a lot of stuff through the tunnels. Um, so soldiers would, American soldiers would go into these tunnels to clear them out, uh, often alone or in small groups. That presents a problem um, because it's hard to get, it was hard to get the M16s in there and the, uh, the, the, the handguns, um, when fired in a small space like that, uh, I don't know if you've, if you've ever been on a firing range, but it can be deafening. And in a small enclosed space like that, it, it can really just um, destroy your ears. So um, for that reason, and for the reasons of stealth, the army, or the military rather, wanted silenced uh, weapons, silenced small arms. Now, the way most silenced weaponry works is through a suppressor, right? It's something that goes on the end of the barrel. Um, when the explosive bullet comes out, it cap the, that suppressor captures the gas, but it's not, it's not as silent as you would, as you would think it would be based on what you've seen in movies. There's still a very loud noise. Uh, so the army's answer to this through a company called AAI, um, AAI developed piston ammunition, and this piston ammunition had a, had a uh, shell casing that was completely um, uh, solid and self-contained. And what, the way normal bullets work is they've got a shell casing that's full, of, that's full of powder, firing pin hits the back of the bullet, there's an explosion, bullet flies through the barrel. These, sil these silenced ammunition shells uh, were solid, and they kind of had a plunger in them um, that, moved, that pushed the powder all the way down to the bottom and there was a long piston on top of it. And so the firing pin would hit the back, there'd be the explosion, and then the piston would move, would, would shoot out and hit the bullet, and that would fire it. And so all of the, all of the explosive gases, um, the flash, every, and even the smoke was contained inside that case. And it was incredibly silent. It worked. Uh, the, and they developed these in uh, 30 caliber rifle ammunition, 38 caliber uh, pistol rounds, um, in the, some of the concept art for the weapons that they developed around this ammunition were very strange looking. There's one that's, the back end of it looks like a revolver and the, the front of it looks like an M32 grenade launcher because the, the bullets were so large and kind of unwieldy. Uh, they refined the design. They eventually got a 44 caliber revolver with silenced ammunition that they, uh, and shotguns, by the way, they had silenced shotguns. Um, that they were able to test in the field. Um, the kind of ammo that they were end up they ended up using was a little bit different. Same kind of thing. Uh, you, you imagine a, an upside down cup that's filled with the, the blasting powder, and that cup moves forward, shoots out pellets that are inside the shell casing, and it's all self-contained and completely silent because that cup moves forward and seals off the top of the the shell casing. Um, the problem is that be because there's something in between the blast and the bullet, whether that's the plunger or the upside-down cup, it slows down the, the ammunition a lot. 
Uh, it doesn't move as fast and it doesn't go as far, and it's just not deadly. Um, in fact, uh, uh, after 25 feet, it wasn't really effective at all. They have we've got reports from the Vietnam era of people being down in the tunnels and firing on an enemy as far as 10 feet away, and it being completely ineffective. Um, How quiet were they, though? I mean, what did this really succeed in bringing the noise down to zero? From the, from the reports that we have, uh, when when you fire a weapon, there's three different sources of sound. There's the actual mechanical sound of you know the clicks and whirs of the the pin striking. There's the explosion from the gases, and there's the bullet. Um, if it's at a high, if it goes at a high enough velocity, will will um, cause a kind of a little sonic a sonic boom noise. These eliminated those last two those last two sources of noise. So yeah, they were silent. Even with the silenced shotgun, we have in uh, special operations reports, um, these guys said that the only noise they heard when they fired these silenced shotguns were the noises of the firing pin. That's it. So they were effective at eliminating noise, but not effective at killing people, which is you know the whole point of a gun. Uh, and I would, and I, I would also like to point out that the Soviets took this technology to heart um, and developed some uh, pistols that were, were basically used the same kind of ammunition, um, but they used them for very close range assassination and that kind of thing. And when you say close range, you really mean I mean close, 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 close range. Yeah, I mean if you put, if you get it right up on top of somebody. It's it's gonna kill them very effectively, but after after ten feet or so, it really starts falling off. So, uh, as weird as that is, though, uh, it's not the only thing. Uh, so, Joe, I, I, you were saying something about the uh, glow sticks. You mean is yeah, this the, I, the kind glow of sticks thing I, at parties. Almost exactly the same kind of thing you see at parties. Glow sticks came out of a Navy development program that started during the Vietnam War as a way of creating a target marking aid, something that would illuminate targets in the dark, but would also not be hot, wouldn't be burning. Because what you had at that point were flares, uh, magnesium or some other very brightly and hotly burning uh, chemical compound, or you had a similar burning arrangement that created a smoke marker, and the smoke wasn't visible during you know visible at night so that doesn't help you at night anyways and these are the two options you had for target marking or for signaling in the in general uh, let alone at night and so there was a desire for a marking item of some sort that would illuminate targets uh, friendly troops needing to be pulled out by a helicopter or something like that in the dead of night and you know, better living through chemistry, you know, putting that uh, all that American ingenuity to work. The idea was to come up with some sort of chemical compound that will that will glow at night without any uh, fire being involved, basically. And the first compound that they came up with was called PB-155. And this was just a, a chemiluminescent chemical, which just means that it, it glows without um, it glows spontaneously on contact with air without any the need for any fire. And so it's just a chemical compound. I don't know the exact composition of... Uh, oh, sorry, PR-155. misspoke there. And you could do almost anything with it because you could combine it with other binders and, and 
you know, you could fill up a spray paint can with it and you could spray the glowing material or you could blend it down with wax and make a crayon, basically, that would have the same effect. You could write in glowing crayon. The problem with PR-155 was that uh, it was caustic, apparently. It may or may not have eaten away at the uh, detonators in grenades that it was contained in. Uh, there was also a concern that it was carcinogenic tests during the Vietnam era, actually, by the Advanced Research Projects Agency, the forerunner of the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, or DARPA, that we're familiar with today, concluded that it could possibly be causing cancer in small uh, lab animals. Wow. And the, the people, that was, so, in other words, Agent Orange, they used, right? But yeah. this was dangerous. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's also, uh, you know, it's Dow Chemical and DuPont. Uh, these are the, you know, these are the, the companies also behind. Uh, oh, and sorry, I said Dow Chemical before. It's actually DuPont Chemical, and that's my mistake again. Uh, because both both companies were involved in uh, chemical production for the U.S. military at that point. And these are the same kind of companies that produced herbicides and other uh deadly chemicals that were used, I guess not deadly at the time, you know, they're not poison gases or anything, but, but turned out to be deadly or otherwise dangerous chemicals. And so the Navy stops development of uh, PR-155, ARPA stops development of PR-155 after some limited testing in uh, Vietnam, there's very little, uh, very little reports of any PR-155 being sent overseas there was some suggestion that it was used during uh, tests of chemical and biological weapons and that it would be a simulated filler. You would fill uh, cluster bombs or other bombs with the, the material, and then you could see how far the agent would disperse by, by tracking where the glowing material ended up as a, as a, you know, to give you a better sense of where your deadly chemicals would actually be going. But the Navy never stops being interested in the idea of a chemiluminescent chemical, and you end up with uh, Silume, uh, which is what we have today. Uh, it's one of it, the Silume company. Uh, it's a trademark, I believe. It, it's still making glow sticks. There are other manufacturers that use similar compounds. I'm sure they they make it just mildly different from whatever Silume's proprietary mix is. But these are understood to be uh, only mildly toxic. Um, basically, poison control centers do offer warnings, but basically they warn about skin and eye irritation and just to wash yourself off and you'll be good to go. You know, not understood to be carcinogenic or anything like that. And these, these are readily available. You know, they're children's toys. You see them all the time, um, parties, raves, whatever, what have you. Uh, but it is, it is a product of us military development and, you know, you can thank them for the glow sticks you have today. Um, speaking to that same problem, Joe, uh, we also, or America also developed combat flashlights, right? Uh, for, for painting targets and illuminating ambushes and that kind of thing. Yeah, I, I wonder if uh, all the listeners will be familiar with the climax of the movie uh, Rear Window, in which the protagonist finds himself in a wheelchair trying to stop a murderer by repeatedly uh, setting off the flashbulb in a camera he has. Uh, that's basically the logic behind the pyrotechnic ambush light, which is basically just a giant flashlight 
you would set it off. Uh, it would burn at hundred uh, at over a hundred thousand candle power, which is basically like providing uh, more or less broad daylight in the middle of the night. And you could blind people. You could illuminate ambushes. Uh, you could set it up to be combined with other traps. You know, it could be set up on a trip wire. It could be set up to a, a hand trigger, the same hand trigger actually used with the uh, M18 Claymore mine, which is a directional landmine that basically sends out a cluster of, of steel fragments. And uh, these are exactly the kind of things that you see all the time when you research the weapons of the Vietnam War are sort of problems and then uh, various research and development entities hiring private companies to come up with a solution. It's actually one of the sort of uh, an interesting side note is that uh, this is a war where you have serious defense contractor participation, both in the United States and in the field. Contractors were in the field as part of various research and development entities showing off these devices to troops they were demonstrating how they were supposed to be used. Um, they were collecting information and going back and making improvements based on those reports. And there was a whole uh, U.S. military research and development structure in Vietnam to support this. Every The, the big th three services, the Army, the Navy, and the Air Force, all had their own research and development arms. The Army had the Army concept team in Vietnam. The Navy had the Naval Research and Development Unit, Vietnam. And the Air Force had the Air Force Development Unit, Vietnam, as well as ARPA's Research and Development Unit, all under this joint research and development entity run by the uh, Military Assistance Command in Vietnam. And all of these groups were trying to cook up new programs and new weapons and new gear, you know, to solve any problem anyone could think of. And that's something that continues to this day, really. It's the same model. You know what I want to hear about, though, Joe? I want to hear about, <laughs> I want to hear about our combat treehouse. Well, that's, this, this sort of this segues really well into the combat treehouse. There's a lot of trees in Vietnam. There's this triple canopy jungle in Vietnam, and it's really hard to see through. And we have these newfangled helicopters, and we'd love to be able to land them in there, but that's not going to work. And somebody said... Okay, we have a solution. We have this solution. We're, we're going to put a landing pad, a helicopter landing pad, on top of the jungle. Just on top of the jungle. And we will, we will have this, this fully-fledged landing pad that you can literally drop on top of the jungle. The, the tests, actual tests, they actually built some of these things and actually sent them to Vietnam. They were tested in Hawaii and in Vietnam. And the idea was that a helicopter would fly in the components and would lay the lay this uh, mesh netting on top of the trees and then put the pad on top of the trees. And then guys would jump out and tie it up to the trees. And then you'd, you'd be ready to go. You'd have a what is effectively a combat treehouse. And there would be a motorized winch that would raise and lower people to the jungle floor. There were plans to turn this into a listening post, turn this into a, a mortar platform where you could just set up a mortar and fire a mortar at people. They, anything you could imagine. They, 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 were, they were basically thinking of how they could make use of this, of this platform. And they were also talking about whether they were going to 
make a system by which fixed-wing aircraft flying at higher speeds could fly over and just drop these things into the trees. They look so sketchy too. If you look at the yeah, we have we have a video. We have a video. We'll link to we'll link to our piece on that too because there's a video online that we found of of it of the test and of this thing being set up. <laughs> so the idea is that you'd actually get in there and set it up very very quickly, right? I mean, even would would it be in combat conditions even? Right. I think, that, you know, I would imagine it'd be difficult to do it while being shot at, but I think the hope was that eventually you get to a point where this could be set up relatively quickly and would provide a little mini base wherever you needed it. Um, did they, and you said they tried them, but they yes, never... Yes, they, they, they sent them to Vietnam. Uh, they tested this out. Um, the uh, reports are conflicted about what exactly happened. The report says that they sent them to Vietnam and then nobody could figure out who had wanted them in the first place. So they had them and they had the company representatives and they had the, the army representatives and they were, they were waiting to demonstrate them to people, but nobody, nobody was interested in the demonstration. And so they were actually getting ready to ship them back to the United States and put them back in storage when representatives of the uh, first cavalry division and the 25, 25th infantry division apparently woke up one morning and heard about these things and said, no, no, wait, wait, we need you to come. We need you to come back and show us. And they actually said, okay, great. You know, we actually haven't shipped them back yet. And they apparently demonstrated, I don't, I don't know exactly what they thought, but they apparently demonstrated them for members of, of first cavalry and 25th infantry, uh, those guys provided feedback, and they they improved the they improved the design. There was actually a second model of this thing based apparently on these you know this customer feedback, so to speak, in the field. And then it just finally died. The the uh, epilogue to this thing is pretty inglorious. It completely falls off the map. The U.S. military comes up with a way way simpler plan, uh, and that's just blowing everything up. Um, <laughs> As part of uh, the Air Force comes up with something called uh, a program called Combat Trap. And Combat Trap is basically just to figure out how many bombs you need to drop into a jungle area to knock all the trees down. And then after Combat Trap, they, they start a new program called Commando Vault, which leads to the development eventually of the Daisy Cutter that people are familiar with, the, the giant 15,000-pound BLU-82 bomb which is specifically designed for this purpose. And that, that is the solution. The solution is to build 15,000 pound bombs filled with an with a industrial explosive slurry and drop them out of C-130 transports with a parachute attached to them and blow up a giant circle in the middle of the jungle. Bombs so heavy, jets could not carry them at the time. And it was actually apparently accurate enough that by the time the United States invades Cambodia in the 70s, they're actually using these things in a tactical sense in that basically because the C-130s are so accurate in where they can put the bombs, they will drop them on enemy units instead of just using them to create helicopter landing zones. And this is something that then we continue to do in Iraq and in Afghanistan. So, <laughs> Well, I mean, uh, I guess it just sort of shows what uh, character of the war um, and uh, the desperation to win uh, in a war that I guess uh, we didn't end up winning. So um, before we wrap up today, we have a couple of things. We just uh, want to clean up a couple of small messes we made in previous podcasts. Um, so, Matt, can you take us uh, through the corrections? Uh, absolutely. 
So during our August 5th conversation about drones, we mistakenly described the loadout of America's Reaper, saying it could carry four Hellfire missiles or four laser-guided bombs. In fact, it can carry up to eight Hellfire missiles, four laser-guided laser bombs, or a mixture of both. Um, during our initial podcast on July 28th, we talked about the F-35. Uh, when describing the embattled jet's weapons systems, we said it could carry um, side, uh, AIM-9 Sidewinder missiles in its cheek bays and compared it to the F-22. F we were wrong. The F-35 doesn't have cheek bays, uh, just four internal hardpoints, meaning it can carry even less than we initially assumed. So, well, we just want to make sure that we get these things right. And uh, so if there are any further corrections, you'll be hearing them at the end of the podcast. Uh, but for the most part, I think we're doing pretty well so far. Um, and uh, I want to thank uh, Joe, Matt, I want to thank you both for joining us. Thank you for having us. And uh, yeah, fascinating conversation. Next time on War College. One of the things the Cold War was very good at was squeezing out the little guys off the big stage. If the Cold War were still on, there was still a Soviet Union, I'm pretty sure that North Korea would never have developed a nuclear weapon because no one would have let them.